Listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Just Check In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker. This podcast is brought to you by Vent. Vent is a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with a podcaster, writer, and a woman who shares some contrarian perspectives on some societally salient issues. So I was really keen to get her on. Her name is Catherine and goes by the moniker Default Friend Online. Catherine has a substack called Default Wisdom, where she writes about sex and dating, internet history, and has an advice column for people who need their burning dilemmas answered. In this episode, we discuss how she came to adopt the name Default Friend, where she believes women are going wrong in dating, and what impact those choices have on their mental health, hookup culture, and why the concept of shame isn't always a bad thing. We also discuss Catherine's experience of anxiety, specifically severe social anxiety and health anxiety, which COVID-19 definitely did not improve. So this is how my conversation with Catherine, aka Default Friend, went. Catherine, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. I heard you on Alex Kishuta, friend of the pods, subversive podcast, and I was really keen to bring your experiences and your opinions onto the pod for my listeners. Hopefully it helps the female listeners. Hopefully it helps my male listeners too. First off, how are you? How are things in the US? They're okay. I have a cold today, so I've been better. Yeah, same. I tested myself this morning and I'm negative. So I I woke up with a very (laughs) blocked up nose. So I think it's going around in the UK at the moment. But yeah, thankfully not COVID. I only had COVID two months ago for the second time. So very, uh, very done with this. You have some really interesting and against the grain is the best phrase I can put it, Kat, in your your writing and in the stuff that you talk about that I'm really excited to explore through a mental health lens. So Without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, let's do it. I want to talk about your writing journey to begin the podcast. So first off, where did your love of writing begin or originate? And where did the moniker Default Friend come from? I've always been writing because I've always been on a computer. (laughs) So I think it's really from like text-based role-playing at some point, I, I think like my mom didn't really understand. I would come to her and like read her these like little intros I'd write for my characters. And she didn't really understand the difference between like role playing and writing short stories. So she'd always be like, oh, you're such a good writer. And then it's sort of between that and then just being more comfortable in writing. I started identifying as a writer. It's a, a little different journey from people who, you know, are like in love with literature or whatever. Mm-hmm. I read a lot, but I, I read mostly nonfiction and like articles and stuff. So it's a, again, I'm not a, I'm not a very literary person. Default friend, actually, I, so I love the word friend. And I had a real like chip on my shoulder when I was a teenager. I always use the word friend, but then like something to imply like being second best or like forgotten, um, like very like self-pitying. And I think when I was making this account, I used to do like email friend was like a, a moniker I used a lot. Let's see what else, like dosto, which means friend. Um, and all of the ones that I used all the time were taken. 
and then second best didn't really have like a good ring to it so i was like the brand oh, that brand wasn't there was it <laughs> yeah i was like oh default friend which is like a lot of people think it means like my like little slogan or like my bio or whatever on twitter used to be like your friend by default and they used to think it it meant like oh you know i'm very very friendly i'm very open to being friends but it means like the person you call when the person you really want is unavailable and that's also how it's like if you google default friend the stuff that isn't me colloquially like that's what it means it means like oh i don't feel appreciated as a first order friend right it's kind of dark but <laughs> very interesting though very interesting yeah. the first topic that i wanted to cover with you and it's one that you've spoken about and written about is cancel culture and now i listened to your episode with stephen elliott who was included on a public list of shitty media men, which now means I need to put the explicit label on the podcast because I've said that, who had allegedly done sexually inappropriate or even abusive behavior, but there was no evidence to back it up. So can you give some context to that list, first of all, for the listeners who don't know? Yeah. So let's see. It was like, I think like 2017, like at the height of Me Too. I'm blanking on her name because there's another person with a similar name who I've been talking to and I've been mixing their name up. So I'm not going <laughs> to accidentally, <laughs> but you know, a female person in media, a woman in media, that's what I'm trying to, trying to say here. Clearly the day quill is kicking in, um, <laughs> you know, made a, made a Google spreadsheet of men in media. So, you know, really in like the New York media scene, really digital publications, but also it's extended to, you know, other things like, uh, video and, and what have you like for accountability to call these guys out but the problem is since it was like open source and anonymous like people could just like put random names on and a lot of you know there were folks who were put on that list who probably did do something terrible by terrible i mean anything as bad as rape to making people feel uncomfortable in the workplace but just the structure opened it up for the list itself to be abused but also, like, I've really learned from experience even in my own life, like, even if something did happen, putting it out in the public square in this particular way causes more harm than good. And, like, there's no justice and there's no healing. And Stephen, unfortunately, was someone who was falsely accused. And, you know, no one knows who put his name there. We talked on, on the podcast, like, thousands and thousands of people were accessing the spreadsheet. And you're drunk or it's late at night or whatever. Who's to say that it wasn't someone who just put a random name on, not even knowing that it would turn into what it turned into, this national story? So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it could, have, it could have been that. It could have been someone with a grudge. He'll never know, which is really horrifying. This brings up an interesting point about cancel culture and its existence, because there are some people normally on the left, I found nowadays, well, especially in the UK, who argue that it doesn't exist. It's merely consequence culture for people who say, pretty uh, horrible things or things which are now outdated or in the past so is cancel culture a myth or is it real I know my opinion on this but what is yours you know I, I think that initially so I think there are real instances is a problem but you can't say that as someone who's critical of cancel culture because then you get all sorts of criticism right <laughs> like so I mean you know sometimes it's like like for example there was a comedian in the United States who like nine years ago or whatever was at a comedy club and there were some black patrons who were speaking over his show and they're being genuinely disruptive but he started like throwing like pretty violent unambiguously like violent racial slurs at them and like you know he was canceled right to me that's like well i mean there's some like 
decorum that you like you can't just like start yelling the n-word at a comedy club where people paid a hundred dollars to come see your show like that's an example harvey weinstein from what i know of the case who, who knows but from what i know like who's he, raping people is very like unambiguous like this person was abusing their power not hundreds but i don't know like dozens of people were hurt by him and he you know he was canceled and in those cases it's like well sure good you know <laughs> like if you're <laughs> sometimes people do really act inappropriately and it's and or more than inappropriately criminally and it's really taboo in right-wing spaces to like call that out because if you say that somehow it's like you're allowing for these more egregious abuses of the system it devolved into like something where well everyone wants to get involved in the spectacle and have their own their own version of it you know like the classic example of like cancel culture off the rails is like Aziz Ansari, who was humiliated for basically no reason. And it was walked back, right? But his career will never be the same. Like, it's just, I mean, the humiliation, even though nobody thinks he's a rapist, he's been so embarrassed that I think he toured maybe a little bit after it happened. But, you know, we don't hear about him anymore. He doesn't get the same kind of work. So, I mean, it's definitely real. I think definitely initially was serving a useful purpose, but it just became too sort of like widely used and... I think part of that also is like there weren't like clear goals for like why we were calling people out. It was just sort of this like mass kind of like mimetic thing of like kicking people out of spaces as opposed to like needing to fix a problem with like a clear end goal, which of course is probably like an impossible thing to expect. It's not really a mass movement. It's more like a social sickness at this Mm. point. Yeah. So it is it is real. You also spoke about something called cancellation adjacent. It could also otherwise be known as guilt by association, I think, which I almost think is worse in some ways. And I, and I will even admit, I certainly sometimes feel this a little when I think about interesting guests who might have controversial opinions and the fear that just by associating yourself with that person or even interviewing them, even though you might disagree with sometimes most of their views, people will try and cancel you too, or you have the imagined view that people will try and cancel you anyway what effect do you think this is having on society's collective mental health oh man i mean that's something i experience all the time like i mean i think it makes people very paranoid all of this stuff i actually have struggled with that too not so much anymore but i remember like i don't know when was it It was like 2018 i had this like terrible three months where i was reading through every single facebook conversation i'd ever had like in case I had accidentally said something that <laughs> if I ever became successful in my career, oh my I'd be God. like dredged yeah. up. And the thing is, the crazy thing is, is like that was a paranoid expression with a kernel of truth because, yes. you know, not so long after that, I posted something, I think it was like 2020, like when George Floyd was killed. I had posted something on Instagram and it was, I was in Portland and I saw some teenagers destroy a community theater during these protests and you know protesting is one thing but like a bunch of kids like destroying a community theater is not really like a political act it's like a bunch of kids destroying a community theater and you know someone from my past had like dredged up like an out of context joke and like had reached out to my sister and was like just so you know like cat is like she's like claiming to you know be this and that but actually she's very racist and she said this like one thing about like Haitian men in 2008. I mean, it was like really that weird. And like, I didn't even know what this person was talking about and it didn't turn into anything, but like you hear that kind of stuff all the time, right? Like it's just like, you know, people like totally going off the rails. So to get back to like cancellation by association, 
people just don't want to be touched by anything that might make them dirty, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's there's, there's a lot of people who have got cancellation weather vanes on them. I think that's the yeah. best way to put it, where everyone they touch seemed to also get brought into the cancellation sphere. And I actually was paranoid to a point where I had had Twitter for quite a long time, probably since my university days when I just chatted a lot of shit. And I just paid like £10 just to delete my entire Twitter history, which was like 20,000 tweets. So like it's now only from, I don't know, the last year where I'm rational and don't really talk about anything apart from football and what new music I like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've had to I've had to loosen up like I could, you know, I know at this point I could be. Well, I think the attitudes are kind of changing, but like, you know, say things stay static. I could be canceled from like 20 different directions and my attitude on it is like, fine, <laughs> what do you what do you gain from it? Maybe I don't want, want these people in my life, my life anyway. I want to now talk about dating and the issues you write and speak about when it comes to mental health. So I've spoken a lot about the apps with a few guests. I've actually deleted all of them myself. So I want to briefly touch on it here. What do you think the apps have done to our communication <laughs> skills as a generation in society first of all i'm 27 so has it made my generation more anxious in real life and if that's the case what the hell is it doing for gen z yeah i go back and forth on this but i think like generally i don't think everyone's only using apps mm-hmm. but i think that it's sort of like the done thing you know things have flipped it used to be like a minority of people would use apps and would be very successful And then mostly everyone would meet people through other means with mixed success. And now it's flipped. Everyone's on the apps with mixed success. And then the people who meet, who develop crushes and whatever meet people through other means have more success on the whole. I do think it's like created a lot of like attachment issues. We hear a lot about like disposability, right? And Mm. like, you know, this unlimited optionality problem. But I also think like the reverse has sort of happened where like, people are sort of so used to the churn that they're willing to commit too quick and their standards start to drop. And then when it doesn't work out, it creates even more pain. And there's a lot of like confusion. Like I do this advice column um, where we mostly get dating questions. And like one question I've been getting a lot is from women who are like 28, 29, Mm -hmm. who commit too quick and then they get bored, but they're too afraid. They're like terrified of going back to the apps (laughs) yeah yeah so like bored is not really the right the right word but like something changes like the honeymoon phase ends and they don't really know what to do and they're like should i keep putting up with this and it can be it it, sometimes it is boredom and just sort of you need to stick it out and see you know see what happens this happens to everyone it'll get better but sometimes it's like it's just not a good relationship but they have been so conditioned to think well i'm on the cusp of 30 and it's like the danger zone I don't want to be rammed through, so to speak. And then they get very anxious in this other way, which I think is sort of an underappreciated problem because we're so used to thinking of women as being hypergamous, right? But I don't think that's always the case. There's also this thing of like now not having any barometer at all. One really interesting thing you said to me off air when it comes to the commentary around dating apps is that the tragedy is that incels are right, but they say it in a traumatized way. What did you mean by that? What are they right about specifically? I think incels are, especially when they're talking about women under the age of, of 25 and they're talking about their own experience. And I, you know, I don't mean this in a misogynistic way. I think, you know, for a lot of women, it's exciting to be able to go on a lot of different dates with a lot of different people. 
And when you're under the age of 25, you do have a lot of power in mm-hmm. this specific environment. It's really hard to talk about, I think, in a, a healthy or coherent way. And then there's this other layer where it's like, I was just thinking about this last night. For young people, let's say you went to a college in, in Chicago and you moved to New York and you don't know anyone in New York. Some, some of your only means of socialization or social excitement come through dating, right? So it's like you both are experiencing like, a lot of people wanting you, and then perhaps it's your only social outlet. So of course you're going to exploit that. And it's really, I think, that age range where that churn and that like disposability is very present for young women. So that's one area where they're right. And I think they're also right that like men are are very like harshly overlooked in a lot of ways. The news is trying to like engineer the story that it's like short king spring. It's bullshit. <laughs> it's absolute that. rubbish. I saw that the other day. <laughs> You know, journalists get bored and I think they, they honestly just like extrapolate from like a very small trend and try to will it into existence. But it's just, it's just not happening. Just like, like the dad bod. Oh yes, Leonardo DiCaprio with the dad bod. Yes, that's because he's Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, I think like at a certain age, you're willing to loosen your standards, which is where you get the sort of attachment, the other kinds of attachment issues I was talking about. But like, especially for like younger people, realistically, like if you are a man of color under let's say 510 and you have an an average job and you maybe you're not ugly but you're just you're you're an average looking guy you're going to really struggle on the apps and i bring race into it because it does matter like incels point this out like asian men um, including south asian men like they get the short end of the stick and we you know we just don't really really talk about it and, and of course it creates resentment I don't think it's as black pilled as perhaps they think, but I, I, you know, I do have sympathy for our inability to grapple with, you know, what it's like to be an ugly or even in some cases average looking man who maybe doesn't have strong social skills. Of course, they're traumatized. When I felt invisible in that way, and, and I did from until I was like, I don't know, twenty one, I was spewing the same stuff, but from the the female perspective. I want to talk about and you've already discussed it a little bit, women's approach to sex and dating. So for non-religious women whose approach isn't confined or defined by a moral or maybe religious set of rules that govern their behavior, you said that they approach sex or sexual relationships in a, in your words, totally fucked up way. So given that you also said that millennial women may have mothers with more conservative or stereotypical attitudes towards sex, how has that played into their approach towards it? Because in your view, that approach hasn't always helped them, has it? Of course not. I mean, so people who are my age are maybe like five years older than I am. There's definitely like this real push and there's certainly gen z women with this perspective too but this like real like idea that sex is power sex is a new experience sex is meaningless and i think like what we're seeing is now women who are anywhere from their late 20s to mid 30s are kind of realizing like this really really hurt me and it is it's a very empty way to live i mean it's 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 these are like lessons that you hear like you know, starlets learning and it's been like this sort of eternal truth, but now like average people are kind of like going through it. And some people they'll become reactionary, but other people will respond by just saying like, well, I've gone this far. I may as well <laughs> In go for a penny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
this is quite a difficult conversation to have because I'm presuming if you were a man making this argument, you might easily get called a slut shamer and your voice dismissed or, God forbid, even cancelled. Where's the right balance here? And, and why is it such a taboo conversation? Is it sexual liberalism overreach, for example, or something else? I think, like, men who do make these arguments, like, usually the men who are making these arguments are either very religious or they're from, like, the manosphere. Like, in terms of men who are making this argument, like, on a podcast, for example, right, or men make this argument all over the place in, <laughs> in the real world. But I think there's, like, a harshness, and it's very hurtful. And I, I think, like, there's a lack of compassion. You know, I've been accused of, of a lot of my perspectives being, like, warmed up or microwave manosphere takes i'm like sure like yeah the manosphere was right on a lot of things and i i'm i'll give credit where credit is due but they're also wrong and you know same goes with incels because they're too angry about it and i understand why they're angry but if you want people to listen and you want to have a conversation about it it can't be said in this in this aggressive way it has to, it really does have to be a woman to another woman and i think it's taboo because people don't like admitting they were wrong and i think it's a very very hurtful topic but also, we just haven't been saying it in the right way. Um, and now I think we're finally reaching a place where women who have come out on the other side are openly saying like, well, I did this or people close to me did this and it wasn't right. So how do we rethink it? I mean, there's just actually, there's just a book published by Christine Emba called Rethinking Sex, which is like a very compassionate, soft entry into these questions. And there's another book by Louise Perry coming out, which is also you know, just unpacking, like, where did we kind of kind of messed this up? How do we disentangle everything? I want to move on to something really interesting you brought up off air, which was the concept of shame. Now, in centuries past, when it comes to mental health, shame and mental health were basically interlinked. That's why the whole concept of stigma <laughs> came from. You wanted to reframe the concept of shame into something more akin to, say, a healthy guardrail. Can you expand on that for the listeners? I mean, I think shame still exists, but we've taken... We've taken it away or we've tried to destigmatize too many things. But here's an example of shame being a healthy guardrail. It's frowned upon if you are generally mentally well and you get like so drunk that you're like throwing up on the train or, you know, you're shoplifting or you're, you're <laughs> belligerent in some way. And that's an example of it being a healthy mechanism. And like that shame, like hopefully will make it so people don't act out in that way, Right. And what are the consequences? I know this isn't true for everyone or every friend group, but like generally like the consequences of behaving like that are, you know, maybe people don't want to go out with you anymore. You'll get some like nasty looks. Your friends will scold you in some way or say like, that's not okay. We forget like that's it's a form of shaming things. You, know, you can't just like jerk off in a movie theater. Like, you know, <laughs> you'll be shamed. You'll be shamed for that because it's just, it's inappropriate. And I think like we have overcorrected in some places because the thing is like if the shame isn't working like with the in the case of like the drinking right then you're you're able to tell like okay this person has a problem and then maybe like it can be addressed in this other way but now it's sort of this like anything goes where there are no guardrails and it feels just like people are kind of just like doing whatever like the accountability part of it or like knowing how it even affects them sort of happens on this lag. And it's like, we're all grappling in the dark, like what behavior is advantageous to us and what mm. behavior isn't. 
Another concept you were keen to discuss was boundaries, and this is linked to shame in some cases, I guess, and the establishment and rolling back of them in equal measure. You wrote about this in an article about micro-rejections. Can you explain what micro-rejections are for listeners who haven't read that article? It was a very good one, by the way. Oh, thank you. Micro-rejections are like small forms of rejection that are cumulative over time. Like a really good example is like, all the times that you get rejected on a dating app, right? Like, <laughs> like, I've got a lot know, of those. That's <laughs> why so I came off right? it. <laughs> like, horrible. It's sort of like this program running in the background. And, you know, we're expected for it, like, not to impact us. But, you know, if you're rejected once or twice, that's, uh, get over it, right? In real life, but, it's funny. It's like yeah. you can just own it and you're over it in, yeah. like, 30 seconds. But if you're rejected thousands of times over a short, you know, a short time span, of course, that's going to have an impact on you. Being, like ignored or or somehow like distanced from like digital acquaintances sure like there's no reason to care you know if it happens a few times a year if it's happening like hundreds of times then like it's not that each individual relationship was super valuable and you need to be overanalyzing it but it's all these like small things are accumulating or accumulating over time and they create like an impression that we're not really allowed to talk about you said in the article that we have no boundaries in our friendships anymore. How have we got there? I think it's a big part of like this push to destigmatize everything. It's like, on the one hand, we're invited to be as open and as vulnerable as possible. And then instead of sort of introducing this idea that maybe some of this openness is a, a sign of intimacy, we've like supplanted being overwhelmed by this with like therapy language. And I have like a lot of feelings about that. I think like, you know, therapy speak, which is a sort of like, oh, I can't hold space for this right now is also sort of a defense mechanism too. But, you know, I think like we're either like sort of too robotic or we're too open and there's no clear idea like what the expectations should be. I mean, I feel like I, I run into this problem once a year, right? Where either I'm surprised by what I can expect of another person or another person is surprised what you know I'm unwilling to put up with is the wrong word, but what I, what I what I'm unwilling to to do for them. Like for example, like it's very hard to put up any boundaries with people like once you are in a friendship too. I got into a fight with someone a couple of years ago, and I don't know why this stuck in my memory, but like he was going through a hard time. I had been there for him, sort of like nonstop. He wanted to do a phone call, and I was staying at my mom's place. She was she was sleeping. He was on the west coast. I was on the east coast. I couldn't pick up the phone and he was like, well, I, you know, I need to talk to you. And this had been like after like weeks and weeks and weeks of sort of being always on. And I was like, I can't do it right now. You know, you can text, I can do it tomorrow, but I can't get on the phone with you right now. And it was like, well, do you even know what friendship means? I feel like this is a very common sort of reaction. Boundary setting, even that basic where it's just like, you know, it's like 11 o'clock and like, I just can't do it in this moment. And I think that those little things speak to sort of the wider the wider landscape of trouble. This is something that I've found quite difficult to navigate, not to make it about myself, this question, but doing vent for the time I've, I'd have done for four years, close to five years now, talking about all my mental health experiences on the podcast. A lot of it is very, very dark. I struggle sometimes to manage when the right moment is for disclosure in dating situations I don't want to overload someone really quickly but at the same time like this is all public like you could easily google me if you found out my second name pretty quickly and read quite a lot of dark articles so how do you think 
men here find the right balance if we are open about our mental health because an overreach of say trauma or underreach can maybe trivialize victim survivors of quite severe issues quite severe traumas can't it yeah I, I think you're I think you're right about that I mean it just it just depends I, I think there's like no sort of like one size fits all yeah answer. that's why I struggle <laughs> yeah I mean it, it depends I mean it really depends on the relationship you know I I have close friends who honestly like I you know I, I love them and I love them like unconditionally but like I wouldn't tell them about certain traumatic events because I you know it, it's not something I think that they are capable of hearing mm. for whatever reason. And then with dating, of course, the hope is that, you know, you reach a point where you can tell this person anything. And it, it can be really hard. I think it also depends on like how it impacts your romantic style. And you know, this is where I think that sort of like the liberal position does make sense because there it, there are some types of trauma, especially like sexual trauma that are, mm. are moralized and are looked at as personal failings. And then it's even, you know, a step further where it's like, it's another confusing thing where say everything's perfect and you have this painful part of your life and you can't disclose it with the person you're dating because you know, based on how they've spoken about other people, that they see it as a, a moral failing, even if that's not true. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard question to answer because I think it's different from person to person and your dating style and, you know, how quickly you're moving and, and also how it, how it impacts you. I mean... There's an argument for maybe some things you never share, which is sad, but it is what it is, I think. Let's briefly talk about your podcast then, because you've been friends with your co-host for over 20 years and you described it to me off air as a nourishing but dysfunctional relationship. Is that what makes your podcast unique? And going deeper, isn't that a lot of friendships sometimes when you really analyze I'm it? I mean, funny question, because, you know, I, I'm completely solo now. Like, we ended after the orgy. Oh, no. My running order's gone up in flames. <laughs> yeah. We could still talk about it. We had a lot of episodes. Oh, but... I didn't know that. Damn. Yeah, I mean, like, I <laughs> well, I don't know. What to... Who knows what there is to say about it? But um, no, I don't think every friendship is dysfunctional. I think every friendship has idiosyncrasies. Oh, there we go. But... That's a better phrase, yeah. <laughs> but uh, dysfunctional is maybe... Not all dysfunctional relationships should end, but certainly many of them should. That's fair. Well, I apologize for that. That's what happens when there's a lag between us doing the, the pod call no, and when we do the pod it's record. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Let's reflect on then your journey, Kat. So what has the podcast taught you about yourself and what has this wider writing journey taught you about yourself too? So, I mean, the podcast taught me that, that I, I, maybe like audio is not my, my medium. <laughs> You know, in, in terms of like a mental health lens, I think like one thing it's taught me is that the way I approach conflict, you know, I am very agreeable, maybe to a fault. You know, speaking of boundary settings, I think that's illustrative of someone who has poor boundaries <laughs> and struggles to enforce them. I didn't realize that sometimes that agreeableness is understood as apathy. If someone seems stressed about something, I'm very much like, I'll do whatever you need. We can cancel. We could do, you know, I'm totally flexible. I'm totally here for you. Even if I, that's not really what I feel, it just feels like I, I'm very conflict averse and I would just rather, you know, lay down and, and just get through it. And sometimes that's interpreted as like, I don't care, which was very surprising to me. It's like, no, it's not that I don't care. It's that it's important that everyone is comfortable and I'm willing to sacrifice my own comfort if it means that this will be easier in general. 
that's a very, I think, speaking of dysfunctional, it's a very dysfunctional way to approach conflict. Another thing I learned about myself doing podcasting in general is very, very clearly not when I'm talking about my viewpoints, but when it comes to interpersonal relationships, I'm terrified of being misunderstood. So to go back to this idea of like therapy language, I will use therapy language Mm -hmm. or like more robotic or unemotional speaking, but it's because I don't want in a tense moment, I don't want someone to misunderstand what I'm saying. And I want to say it in the clearest, plainest English possible. So we could, so, you know, we could just get down to the solution and clear things up and just, you know, hear all my cards, laying them on the table really plainly. But on paper, that looks like something like, oh, that's very rational. That's like, that's how, that's how you be like a good teammate. There's something very like, you know, on paper, it's very easy to justify. In real life, that's viewed as like, oh, you know, you're unemotional, you're dismissive. It makes people actually really angry to be like that, which is really surprising because to me, it's always been a coping mechanism for this person has, you know, very complicated emotional expression. How can I like make space for them to feel what they need to feel and make them feel better? But nope, that actually makes things a lot worse. So, I mean, those are the two big things I've learned, I think. We've talked about Catherine, the writer, and Catherine, aka Default Friend. I want to talk about your own journey now, Kat. So I ask all my special guests this question first on this topic. Walk me through early life growing up in the US, teenage years, childhood, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the cat we meet here? So I've always been very socially anxious. That's a big one. I defend people who retreat into the the screen because I think it is a retreat often you know there's this argument that gets made that people who are like let's say like addicted to video games or something it's the video game addiction that made them socially awkward I actually think it's the other way around I think socially awkward people gravitate towards screens because of the anxiety and it it soothes them and then the problem becomes much worse and the escapism (laughs) and they always want to escape into it yeah yeah so I would say like that was a, a big thing for me. I remember there's definitely like a point in my life where like I was so overwhelmed. I was in front of a screen pretty early, but I remember like even like distinctly thinking like where I'm so anxious, like I don't need the, well, not that I didn't need the physical world, but like there's this parallel world that is right there that I could be there instead. And it felt so much better than, I don't know, like going to the mall with like, girls who I didn't feel liked me very much, who, you know, were thinner than me and like had more money than me and to whom I couldn't relate at all. Have you developed any tools along this journey to manage the social anxiety or even overcome it? No, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. I mean, I have, I have anxiety, it, you know, manifests in all different ways. Sometimes it goes away, but sometimes it's like pretty embarrassing. Having my phone on me is very helpful. You know, I hate to say it, but like, So I'm allergic to alcohol. I pretty much avoid it now. But when I could metabolize alcohol, I wouldn't drink too much or anything uh, because it still was pretty hard on my body. But like definitely like drinking would help uh, like loosen me up. But it's I mean, it's a it's a difficult thing, you know, because you become very trapped in your own head. I mean, it's very hard for me to like look at people sometimes, which is also like really embarrassing. It's also really different for women. Right. Like I don't think I have Mm. uh, like autism for example, which is, that's a hallmark of autism. I think I'm, it's, it's an anxiety thing. And then the anxiety becomes distracting. And it's like now, hopefully this is, this is interesting to bring it up. Right. But I didn't want to go on the camera. I'm not looking at you. So I also (laughs) miss cues. (laughs) (laughs) I want to move on to 
relationships now, not just ones you give advice on. You were married for six years before you were with your current partner. Now, we're not, we're not going to go into the details of that relationship specifically, but what was your mental health like at this point and the Catherine we meet here? Also very, very, very anxious and probably the most anxious that I've, that I've ever been. And I think part of it is I had definitely like too much time in my own head, but then also there was no like physical space to go to in our house, which made it a lot worse. So sort of like always on alert. And I think that was exhausting my mental resources. At its worst, when it comes to your anxiety, you said that it became so bad that it began to present as other disorders. Like at one point you said you thought you were schizophrenic. I mean, that must have been incredibly scary. Is that how it felt at the time? Not all the time, but it's just like when you're sort of in this heightened state all the time, you become like very paranoid. And if you're used to like your baseline being like you could parse the world around you, it's difficult, right? Like, you know, like if you think, like I would think like food's poisoned, for example, or like that I was allergic to food. And like, it was so sort of like ridiculous because I like intellectually, I knew like that's not, like who would be poisoning my food? That's (laughs) That's insane, right? But you're like constantly sort of believing it. And you start to wonder like, is this not anxiety, but instead like the early signs of something much more serious but no it's it is it is actually anxiety and it is about like just being too like your cortisol levels just being too high over too long a period of of, of time it's thankfully not that extreme anymore but there's no suppressing this stuff it comes out in all sorts of surprising and fantastical ways you divorced from your partner which thankfully was amicable and then a short time after that or an intermediate time after that you had a really positive mental health boost which you said was night and day so who's the cat we meet here so at this point i'm very like optimistic and just like more able to relax so i was just sort of i was just a mess and just like very paranoid and like very frightened in the period previous to this and it's just like more, it's more able to function. You know, a lot of people noticed it. Like I just seemed like more at ease. Health anxiety is another form of anxiety you have lived with and sometimes struggle with cat. It used to be called hypochondria back in the day and people were pretty much widely mocked for it, derided for it. Now there's a lot more awareness and education about it, specifically because of COVID, I think, to be honest. But back then, how much stigma did you face yourself from it? And how much stigma did you internalize? I don't know if I internalized any, just because I was like, well, there's always a chance that I'm right. So like, I, I can't bother with the do I look stupid shit? Like, what if I am having an allergic reaction to something I need it? Like, that's a, that's an immediate concern, which is like, I actually think like an underlooked thing with mental health. Like maybe the raving lunatic in the street does know that he looks, he looks silly or, or stupid or disruptive, but it's like more important to him that people know that the government's in his brain, you know, like whatever. I don't want to- I was going to say that's me on a Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want ever to trivialize that hypothetical person. But I mean, other people for sure thought I was, you know, thought, and when these things do come back, because they do come back in blips, think I'm ridiculous. I've had like a lot more compassion from people who realize that like when I do get into these episodes or even in the past, like towards the end of that, you know, like heightened uh, expression of it, that it was like serious and like I genuinely believed these things or, you know, willing to sort of tell me ad nauseum, like, oh, you know, there's no way to get like hepatitis C was like a big thing I was uh, obsessed with. 
And like, there's nothing in your life that you do that would expose you to that. And I would do all these mental acrobatics that at the time seemed perfectly rational to be like, well, actually, like if you touch a door in this way, and then like, there's, you know, a 0.001% chance that's still, I can't even like replicate it because you have to be in a really specific state of mind to be thinking that way. But just having people who were like, no, that's not how it works. Uh, My current partner, like, is an expert in statistics. He's a a statistician. So that's very helpful. (laughs) But I bet. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, people think this stuff is really silly. And it it is, right? Because when you face it, it, you know, if someone genuinely is like, oh, well, I touched this doorknob two weeks ago. And they're really believing that. Like, normally, they're perfectly rational. You're like, it's laughable. I don't think it's a good thing to laugh, but like, I understand it. So then given that, do you feel more comfortable disclosing that health anxiety to the right people now? I, at this point, it's so rare now, but I well, that's only good. <laughs> bring, yeah. I mean, I only bring it up if I feel like it's going to be necessary or if something triggers it. There's certain plot devices in movies that like, I would just rather not see, you know, I don't want to say like, Breaking Bad, for example, used to be very hard for me to watch. When it was really popular, it was like when this was really bad. So I'd just be like, oh, you know, I don't like that show. It just like makes me uncomfortable. And you don't have to make a big like spectacle of it. So it's more things like that, just sort of avoiding the things that are bothersome. Let's reflect then on your mental health journey, Kat. So how have all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today? And if you could go back and talk to the Catherine who was struggling with her marriage, or the Catherine who was having huge health anxiety flare-ups, or maybe the Catherine about to embark on Default Friend and the writing journey. What would you say to her, knowing what you do now? I actually don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fine answer. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I have the knowledge, because I think, like, some of this stuff is just, like, you know, I can't go back and, like, tell my younger self, your food's fine, right? Because I'm anxious about something, And that anxiety would come out another way, right? But I also think I knew that then. So it's a whole lot of things have been broken. So I don't really think there's anything to... Maybe I've learned what is stressful and what is a healthy environment and what what isn't. We've come to our final topic of conversation on the podcast, Kat. And it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly... How is your mental health at the moment? It's pretty good. Excellent. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? At some point as a teenager. Was there a specific moment or was it a eureka or was it a gradual process? I mean, there was a moment when I realised that like my reactions to things weren't normal. I was being like yelled at. I think I was like 14. I remember being on like MSN Messenger or yes. something. BRB, just, like... when BRB actually was BRB. And now we're yeah. always online. BRB doesn't exist. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. No more AFK. But yeah, I think that was when I was like, this is, you know, I think I'm adapting to this environment in like a unhealthy way. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about the first conversation then you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And did it feel like a part of you had changed or it felt like a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other hand, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I don't remember. Things definitely got weird during puberty, as is the case with most teenage girls. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I can't relate, but I can understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I remember like my parents used to be very sort of like, they didn't believe mental health issues were real. And then like, I don't know, they started watching MSNBC and like it all changed. But um, I don't know. I have no memory of a specific conversation. Okay, that's fair enough. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be a sound, you know, like you said, a particular film or book or play, or have you not figured all of them out yet? This is like giving someone a list of your fears, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> if so, you like, so, yeah. Yeah, so sometimes it's like a, so very rarely it's like a piece of media or like a certain kind of storyline. Then I would say like any situation where I'm under a lot of, pressure and I don't have any time to decompress and also I'm like too sort of alone in my own thoughts like a terrible time for me was I was a cashier at a store I had a regular email job and then I was doing freelance work all at the same time Jesus and there was no time to sort of just do nothing (laughs) and that triggered me but also on the flip side there's too much nothingness And, you know, I don't have enough to distract me. That's also sort of a trigger. And I would say any variation of that. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably why I do podcasts every weekend because I don't like having nothingness to do. Conversely, then, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I think like the sort of conventional wisdom of like going outside and exercising every day is really helpful and like avoiding drugs and alcohol and like trying to eat well all of these help a lot one thing i think that i like a temporary fix is like i think any sort of form of escapism starts to eat at you it's really easy to think that like oh i'm just gonna dive into twitter or uh, discord or second life or whatever but that doesn't that's not really helpful that actually just makes it worse over time i think What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. Um, That's a great question. I don't think I have one, actually. I've had books that I've read in dark periods that have sort of made me feel better. But I think, I don't know, I think it's like very like specific to whatever my anxiety is at the time. What about a play or TV show or other piece of content that you found helpful? When I was in college, anytime I was really upset, I would watch High Fidelity and I don't have an explanation for this. <laughs> I just thought there was something like kind of nice about that or like Labyrinth or like David the Gnome was another one. I mean, just like, I don't know why, but I found them like just very like therapeutic. You can't really learn anything from any of the pieces of media I just, uh, just listed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some sort of ASMR element to them maybe that helped. I don't know. <laughs> As a final question, Kat, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I would say just be like very mindful with who you do it with. I think there's like subtle cues that you can pick up on to see if that person's compassionate. It's a really hard question. And, you know, I think it's really individualized because I think like for some people, unfortunately, talking about your mental health issues can actually like worsen them Mm. and perpetuate problems. That's a very good way to end. Catherine, aka Default Friend, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and let me check in with you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Catherine, aka Default Friend, for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with her. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Catherine on social media, subscribe to her Substack, and listen to After the Orgy in the show notes. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. Tell everyone you know. Write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us out with those algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash uk, or you can visit our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay. Okay.